grandpa walked into the family room and found his little grandson, Jeffrey, standing up in his playpen crying. He looked so pitiful. Standing there in his little baseball t-shirt and diaper. His face was red and tear-stained from crying. When Jeffrey saw his grandpa, his face lit up in a way that tugged at the old man's heart. Jeffrey reached up his, his little chubby hands and said, Out, Papa, out. <clears throat> What grandpa could resist such a plea? Not this one. (laughs) He walked over to the playpen, reached down to lift up his little buddy out of his captivity and distress. But then the law stepped into the room. Jeffrey's mother walked out of the kitchen with a dish towel in her hand and spoke sternly. No, Jeffrey, you're being punished. You have to stay in your playpen. Leave him alone, Dad. Now, what's a grandpa to do? His grandson's tears... And reaching little hands tore at him deeply. But he didn't want to interfere with a mother's discipline. He couldn't stand staying in the same room with the boy, reading his newspaper and pretending not to care. Nor could he walk out of the door without feeling like a betrayer to his little buddy. What could he do? Well, love found a way. Since Grandpa couldn't take Jeffrey out of the playpen, he leaned over, did some rearranging to make room, and climbed on in with Jeffrey. He said, if you're in the playpen, I'm in the playpen too. So what's your sentence, Jeffrey? How long are we in for? We are focusing on the last week of Christ. The last week of his earthly ministry. We began with the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem where Jesus rides into the capital city fulfilling... Old Testament prophecy as only the true king and Messiah could do. The city was in an uproar with his arrival. It was quaking with excitement. For the people had certain expectations of Jesus. Expectations that he would deliver them from their enemies. From their problems and establish his earthly kingdom right then and there. That's what they expected. 
But that's not what they got. For instead of ascending to the throne to reign, Jesus must first be lifted up to redeem. Now make no mistake, Jesus is in control. Forcing the hand of the religious leaders to act against him during Passover. And to turn up the intensity, we come to the second event that occurred during the last week of Christ. The cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. Where I would like to think, maybe in a symbolic way, Jesus is making room for us. The cleansing of the temple happens on Monday. The day after the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I say it's Monday because in a parallel passage, Mark explains that once Jesus came into the city on Sunday, he enters the temple and takes notice of everything that's going on there. Then with his disciples in tow, Jesus makes his way to Bethany which is only a few miles away, presumably to stay overnight with his friends, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So, with that said, let's pick up from where we left off in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, beginning with verse 12. Matthew 21, beginning with verse 12. We there? You there, Alan? You got it? Okay, okay, just checking. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, you just heard this, it is written, my house shall not be called, shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Before we dig into this passage, I really need to set the stage. As you know, It's the time for Passover, where devout Jews from all over the world have descended on the city of Jerusalem, multiplying the population four to five times its normal size. Two million people, maybe more, are there to take part in this seven-day celebration to commemorate the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. 
And in this celebration, somewhere in the neighborhood, this is staggering, somewhere in the neighborhood of 250,000 lambs and goats will be sacrificed at the temple. Sorry, Liz. One for each family, and that's not including the doves and the pigeons for the poor. Thank you for the sound effect. Because <laughs> that was a staggering number. Okay. As you might imagine, as you might imagine, it was really hard to travel from a long distance with the live animals they needed for sacrifice. So instead of bringing animals on their journey, it was much easier just to carry money and to purchase the animals in Jerusalem before arriving at the temple. In principle, on paper, that seems to be a great idea. It's helpful. It's convenient. Until the whole thing was turned into a version of organized crime. By the religious leaders. And let me explain. Annas, who still bore the title of high priest, his sons... And his son-in-law, Caiaphas, you've heard those names, who's the current high priest who was put in place by the Romans, were greedy and corrupt. And under the guise of worship, they preyed upon others to become filthy rich. As you know, the temple in Jerusalem, is there a picture on the board? The temple in Jerusalem was sectioned by several inner courts. Solely for the Jews. Solely for the Jews. And an outer court for the Gentiles called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was the large open area you see in that picture. The outermost courtyard and the only area on the temple grounds where non-Jews and foreigners and outcasts and those considered unclean could learn about and worship the one true God. The court of the Gentiles was as far as they could go for worship in the temple. But at this point, their only place of worship has been turned into nothing but a strip mall. Vendors who purchase franchise rights from the Jewish religious leaders were allowed to set up their businesses in the court of the Gentiles. 
And they sold their products, such as food and souvenirs and salt and wine and oil and, of course, sacrificial animals. It was really profitable, especially during the week of Passover. And whatever these vendors sold, they had to give up a percentage to the religious leaders who would take their cut and then divvy up the rest amongst the other priests in the crime syndicate. So what would happen if you brought your own animal for sacrifice? Some did that, right? What would happen if you brought your own animal? Well, before the sacrifice... The animals were thoroughly inspected for blemishes. And if the animals were considered unacceptable for sacrifice, the priests would force you to buy one of their pre-approved animals at a very steep price from a vendor inside the courtyard. Your animal doesn't cut it. Now over there is Bubba. He's, we've, already, we've already proved his sheep. Go buy one over there. That's what was happening. But that's not all. They also had money changers in the courtyard. Their job was to take currency that people were using, typically Greek and Roman currency, and exchanging it for the acceptable money so they could give their offering or pay a temple tax. A temple tax was to be paid by every Jewish man every year. Now, of course... The temple would only take the approved money. And you can see where this is going. The money changers were requiring people to pay huge surcharges to exchange this money. And of course, the religious leaders would get their cut. So under the guise of worship, the Jewish religious leaders had created a gouging and profiteering scheme. It was absolutely criminal. And isn't it ironic that the Jews hated the tax collectors like Matthew? And yet, in the name of worship... The Jewish religious leaders were robbing their own people blind. Anyway, Jesus walks into the courtyard through the eastern gate. And this is where you cue up the soundtrack to the movie Jaws. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, this is is what's happening, okay? You got to have the music going. 
immediately Jesus goes to work. He drives out the vendors and their customers from the courtyard. Tables and chairs are flung all over the place. Animals are scattering. Doves and pigeons are flying off. And money is rolling all over the ground. Jesus goes in and demolishes the entire strip mall. Rejecting what he hates. Their version of worship. If you recall, just the day before, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a young donkey and the people proclaimed him as the king. And they expected him to deliver them from the Romans. To just walk over to the Antonia Fortress. If you look on the map, it's that piece at the top. That's the Roman garrison. They expected Jesus just to walk through the temple to the, to the Roman garrison and to clean them out. But what do we see here? Oh, there was some cleaning going on. But it's not the Romans. It's his own house that's being cleaned. The Apostle Peter spoke on this very thing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, where he said, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Where would Jesus go first if he came to America? Would it be Washington, D.C.? To Wall Street? To Las Vegas? To Hollywood? He would go directly to the churches, to those who claim to worship him. You see, for Jesus, oh, this is so, this is so, this is so wild. For Jesus, the Romans were not the main problem. God's people were. You get that? The Romans were not the main problem. God's people were. God had made room for them, but they did not make room for God. Now for some, what Jesus is doing might seem really out of character for him. Jesus is often portrayed as nothing but meek and mild. But let me remind you that this Jesus who healed the sick, who fed the thousands, who loved the unlovable is the same Jesus who told the religious leaders their father was the devil. They were a brood of vipers. Yes, Jesus was meek and mild when encountering broken people. 
But he was hell, fire, and brimstone when dealing with the self-righteous. Who actually turned people away from God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. But please do not forget, he is also called the Lion of Judah for a really good reason. So there were likely thousands of people in the courtyard. Imagine that. Thousands of people in the courtyard, but have you noticed that no one tried to stop him? Maybe Jesus was flexing a little bit of his God muscle as he was flinging tables across the courtyard. And they were scared of him. Or maybe people knew they were completely busted. Jesus knew it. They knew it. And there was nothing they could do about it. Hopefully, you can see why Jesus takes this necessary course of action because the temple was supposed to be a place where God's people could draw close to him and demonstrate their devotion. But instead, the temple was completely corrupted by empty and false worship. God was not pleased with his people. Their hearts were far from him and things needed to change. You know, getting a little personal. Doesn't God do this very thing in our own lives? I hate when he does that. God calls us his own. And he enters our hearts And the cleansing starts. From the inside out, God deliberately, yet carefully, goes from room to room in our lives to do a little remodeling, if you will. He exposes our self-centered agendas and he reveals our empty and meaningless worship where we just go through the motions. And for our own good, he flips over the tables and the chairs of sin, disrupting our lives, frustrating us, telling us that things need to change. A young man named John received a parrot as a gift. The parrot had a bad attitude and an even worse vocabulary. Every word out of the bird's mouth was rude, obnoxious, and laced with profanity. John tried and tried to change the bird's attitude by consistently saying only polite words, playing soft music, and anything else he could think of to clean up the bird's vocabulary. Finally, John was fed up, and he yelled at the parrot. The parrot yelled back. 
John shook the parrot. And the parrot got angrier and even ruder. John, in desperation, threw up his hands, grabbed the bird, and put him in the freezer. For a few minutes, the parrot squawked and kicked and screamed. Then suddenly there was total silence. Not a peep was heard for over a minute. Fearing that he had hurt the parrot, John quickly opened the door to the freezer. The parrot calmly stepped out onto John's outstretched arms and said, I believe I have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. John was stunned at the change in the bird's attitude. And as he was about to ask the parrot what had caused such a dramatic change in his behavior, the bird continued, May I ask what the turkey did? So for these turkeys in the temple, Jesus is making some changes and he explains why in verse 13. My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you are making it, thank you, a robber's den. Jesus is quoting Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11. Which is a verse they would have absolutely remembered as soon as he said it. A robber's den is a place where thieves would hide out for safety. Like a cave. And likewise, these people thought they could come into the temple... Do whatever they wanted to do in the name of religion. All the while assuming they were safe from God's judgment. They thought they were safe in the temple. Even though they had forsaken and abandoned the God of the temple. And when Jesus said the words, my house... That's exactly what he meant. It's the Lord's house. It's his house. And in a subtle way, Jesus is declaring that he is God. With the authority of God to cleanse the house of God. God's house should be a house of prayer. A place to seek his face. A place to talk with God from the heart. A place to acknowledge one's absolute dependency upon him. A place to praise and worship God for who he is and what he has done. A place to act in faith according to his word. That wasn't 
happening in the temple. It had become religion without a relationship. And Jesus needed to clean his house. Well, Jesus is not done in the temple. And once clean, and I'm not saying tidy, because a Jesus bomb just went off in there, but clean, he takes the opportunity to show the proper use of it. Let's continue with verse 14, where we are told, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. After all the commotion, after this very public and deliberate remodeling scene, we're told that the blind, the lame, the crippled, the handicapped, those the Jews considered unclean and cursed of God, those normally shunned and excluded, you know, those people, come into the court of the Gentiles to see Jesus. They came to the temple for the right reason, to seek God and to come into his presence. And sure enough, God was much closer to them than they could have ever imagined. He was in their midst. And they were not driven away like the others. This is what the Lord wanted in his temple all along. He wanted the religious leaders to care about their people, to serve and to minister to them, to show compassion. But instead, they abused their people, so Jesus hit them where it hurts. Their pocketbook. Well, Jesus knows what is coming. Towards the end of the week, on Friday, he will be rejected by his own people. The Jews will crucify their king and Messiah. They will cut him off. And as a consequence, the church age will be ushered in. And as I said earlier, maybe in a symbolic way, Knowing this, knowing all of this, Jesus cleaned the temple to make room for us. So none of this goes unnoticed. I mean, how could it? And beginning with verse 15, Matthew tells us this. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done. This is unbelievable. And the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. 
This is amazing. The Jewish religious leaders are furious. Not so much for what Jesus has done, but for the praise that's being focused directly on him. Jesus did some amazing and wonderful things. They saw these miracles up close and personal for themselves. The blind can see, the lame can walk, the deaf can hear, but you know what? It meant nothing to these religious leaders because these broken people meant nothing to these religious leaders. To these religious leaders, what makes them angry is to hear children in their innocence, probably young boys experiencing their very first Passover in Jerusalem, recognize Jesus for who he truly is, the son of David, the Messiah who has come to save. The religious leaders wanted to stop these children. They wanted Jesus to reject their words of praise. But Jesus let them continue for they were speaking the truth and they were focused on him. Lou Little, the former football coach at Columbia University had a guy on his team who didn't play very well. But who had a spirit that lifted the morale of the entire squad. Coach Little was proud of the boy and marveled at how he and his father would walk arm and arm around the the campus after the football game. The boy's father died unexpectedly. And after he returned from the funeral, the boy asked if he could play in the game on Saturday. He said he wanted to play for his dad. The coach thought he would let him him start for the first few minutes, then replace him with a regular player. But to his surprise, to the surprise of everyone, the boy played the entire game. He played 60 minutes of hard, inspired football. After the game, the coach sought out the boy and asked, What got into you out there? The boy replied, Do you remember how my dad and I used to walk around arm in arm after the game? Well, he didn't want people to know, but he was totally blind. This afternoon was the first time he ever saw me play football. For this boy, his heart was focused 
upward. His face was turned to heaven. He was all in and it showed. It showed. I read a devotion some time ago where the writer said, and this is so true, the hardest thing to do as a Christian is to obey God. And yet, hear me, and yet the easiest thing to do is to obey God as soon as you decide He is God. Do I need to repeat that? The hardest thing to do as a Christian is to obey God, and yet the easiest thing to do is to obey God as soon as you decide He is God. Ultimately, isn't that the heart of the matter? God made room. He made room for us. Not simply to walk through the motions of religion, but to engage us in a real and personal life-changing relationship. God made room for you. And here's the question. Have you made room for God? Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Father, you are so good and so gracious, so merciful, so patient, so forgiving. In spite of us, you still love us. That's hard to understand, but it is the truth. You love us more than we could ever know. And you made room for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for going to a cross on our behalf to pay a sin debt that you did not owe because each of us had a sin debt we could not pay. Thank you for that love. Father, I pray that you would bring us back to the heart of worship to turn our face to you To cast our eyes on you. To seek you. To worship you. To obey you. To trust you. And to love you. Father, may you be honored and glorified in us. Have your way in us. Even this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.
I was thinking of a <clears throat> another passage this morning. <clears throat> another passage about the temple. It's in Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, chapter seven. <clears throat> Verse 1. Now when Solomon had finished praying, remember Solomon, King David's son, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. Priests could not enter the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good, truly his loving kindness is, uh, is everlasting. <clears throat> then I'm going to jump down to verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and successfully completed all that he had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his house. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, hear this, and my people, God's people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. He's talking about God's people here, not the Romans. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, their sin, and will heal their land. <clears throat> We are so prone. I am so prone. When I look at our country, what do we do? Oh, those people in Washington, they got it so messed up. Right? I knew that. Oh, those people in Olympia. The craziness in Hollywood, right? We, we, we could spend all day doing this. And we do. And we do. And what are we told? I better look here first. Right? 
That's what was being told to Solomon by God. If you want to heal your land, it's not about changing Washington, D.C. Where does it start? God's people. Us. I have no control of what happens in other churches. Right? We are God's people. Are we not? Amen. We need to turn our face to Him. If you're just going through the motions, I've done it more times than I can count. Just going through the religious motions. I know i got to do this. Nothing here at all. Nothing. Not absolutely nothing here at all. There have been times when I've sit in a chair in a church so angry at God, I couldn't see a single one. We are so prone to do this. Are we not? It has to start with me. I've done with the religion. It's got to be a relationship. However, the Lord moves you. I just ask that you to respond to The hardest thing to do as a Christian is to obey God. And yet the easiest thing to do as a Christian is to obey God. As soon as you decide, He is God. 